Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am Scott Goldfine, your host, musicologist, and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and get it, for God's sake. What's keeping you? You'll enjoy it. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. My guest today is singer, guitarist, composer, producer, Kurt Jones, best known for his contributions to Funk Giant Slaves, classic albums, Just a Touch of Love, and Stone Jam. And then going on to front seven albums for Aura and its relaunch, Deja. With the support of Slaves, so-called Fearless Leader, producer and multi-instrumentalist Steve Washington, Aura was a spinoff that shot out of the gates in the early 1980s with the funky smash hits, Are You Single? and Make Up Your Mind. Those songs also featured former slave vocalist and longtime Jones friend, Starlina Young. In the 1990s, Jones went largely off the radar, but came back with a vengeance to deliver his first solo album in 2006 called 360 Degrees. He followed that up with the epically diverse and ambitious double CD solo in 2010, and most recently, in 2015, he came out with another varied and strong collection called Simply Three. And with songs on it, like Lone Funkenteer, you, you can bet Jones has not forgotten how to keep it groovy. Although he's still quite adept also at soul and R&B. And if you check out his clips on YouTube, you'll find out that he's really ferocious on guitar. Or if you catch him live, if you're fortunate enough to catch Kurt live. I caught up with him for an in-depth discussion that swings from New Jersey to Ohio to Texas to Minnesota funk, R&B, and a very good time. So here's my conversation with Kurt Jones. Stick around. It gets pretty in-depth. Enjoy. I'm so very pleased to welcome to Truth and Rhythm singer, composer, guitarist Kurt Jones, best known for his success with one of the mightiest funk bands of all time, Slave, and its offshoot, Aura later known as Deja. Kurt, how are you this fine February 2018 early evening? I'm doing great, Scott. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. So glad to have you. Now, where you're coming from, uh, are you in Texas? I'm in Texas right now, yes. Yeah. Whereabouts? Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay. Yeah. And how long have you been out there? Uh, I'd say about three years, you know, yeah, three years, since uh, 2014, summer of 2014, when I actually moved out, yeah. Well, I'm not sure if you, how you'll feel about me after I share this, but I am a lifelong Cowboys fan. <laughs> well, that's all right. I'm not, <laughs> I, well, I'm, I'm, my buddies in Minnesota know I'm a, I've been a Viking fan because I surprised them when I got to Minnesota. I think I knew as much about the Vikings in, in the old days as they did. <laughs> they were shocked, you know, but but that's all right. I mean, uh, I'm an NFL fan first, you know, so I, I appreciate anybody that plays the game well. Heck of a game this past weekend. Yeah, it was, really. Yeah, it was. A lot of soap opera drama going on right now with, yeah, yeah. afterwards. <laughs> it's almost yeah. like a video game that came. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you ready to mix it up with some questions? Sure am, yeah. All right. 
Well, first, uh, Kurt, I want to uh, get a foundation of, you know, where, where, where you came from, you know, where were you born and what was childhood like? And, and I know you had a musical uh, family, a bit of a musical background. So let's talk about that foundation a little bit. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, I was born and raised in New Jersey and uh, born in, uh, I was actually born in Newark, New Jersey, but was raised in Linden, New Jersey. And, uh, all my hometown folks in Linden, you know. Uh, came up there and uh, went to school there. Played sports in school with my buddies and uh, then started bands and got into music. But uh, like I said, my, I, like you just reminded, you know, everybody that, that uh, I have a musical family. And it, it was in my family line long before I even got here. My grandfather on my mother's side, uh, Herschel Davenport, was a uh, leader of a big band called Davenport's Blue Rhythm Band. And he, he played a bunch of instruments. <laughs> he played so many instruments. And he, and, he, uh, and he worked and played. And at that time, this is now, this is a long time ago. We're talking about early 1900s. And he had his own radio station. I mean, wow. I, I don't know too many, too many African Americans that could pull that off back then. But he did that with the band, and in his band, he had uh, let me see. I'll I'll think of it in, in a few. But he had a blue blue rhythm band, and then his daughters were uh, the my mother's sisters the Davenport sisters, they performed and then they signed and they were with Motown when Motown first started. Uh, it was a subsidiary of Motown called Tri-Fi Records. And they cut a bunch of records with that. And uh, they knew Spinners, Marvin Gaye, everybody that was there, that was when Motown was really just starting out. I mean, as my aunt would put it, everybody ate out of the same pot of beans. You know, it was like that kind of, getting it going thing. And uh, she, she knew Marvin and uh, she knew uh, Harvey Fuqua from the Moonglows who got Marvin to join the, the Moonglows when he first left home and toured with them. And Harvey was managing my, my aunts at the time and was working with them. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they recorded and they played and toured and did did a bunch of great music and uh they were there was this was a time when they were doing it that uh i was very young you know i was like maybe five six and two of my aunts came out to jersey because they were all from western pennsylvania my, my mother's side of the family's from right outside of pittsburgh in the valley in monongahela pennsylvania yeah. and uh so about five or six, I mean, two of my aunts came out to Jersey and they were right in, I think in the next town, Elizabeth, New Jersey. And uh, they'd come over and rehearse in our basement. My dad and my mom let them come over and rehearse. And <clears throat> they were uh, one, two, let's see, one, two, three, four of them. But my Aunt Penny, the one she sang, they all sang, my Penny sang and played guitar. 
an electric guitar. So when they rehearsed in our basement, I'd go down in the basement and sit right next to her. And I'd be watching her with the guitar. And it was just, it was just, I was like drawn to it every time, you know, she would, they would rehearse. I just wanted to sit next to her because she had the guitar. And I don't know, I think about a year after that, I was around seven years old, I, I'd asked my dad if, uh, if he thought Santa would bring me a guitar. Seven years old, Christmas morning, it was electric guitar. And it was old Sears Silvertone. A lot of guitarists still like those guitars. And they make, they still sound good to the day. And uh, they came with a case with the amplifier built in the case. And so many guitars that I've, you know, heard from and know of uh, started with the same thing, you know. And, uh, those things are probably, pro I'm gonna put some work into it. I still have it. I'm gonna put some work into it and get it so it's playable again. because they sound great, you know. But yeah, that's my, uh, the Davenport sisters was uh, uh, Penny Toms, Sylvia Davenport, uh, Hazel, it was Hazel Davenport at the time, and Norma Davenport. And, uh, they, they sang and played and inspired me. Now, fast forward to that, fast forward from there, later on as I, the first year I took lessons, I put I took lessons and then I put the guitar down for a little while because I was still a kid. I was eight. I wanted to join the Cub Scouts, do stuff my friends were doing. I felt like I was missing out. And then <clears throat> get to junior high school and I'm about 12 years old and I go in the, in the auditorium and they're rehearsing. I'm hearing all this music. And I was always aware of uh, the orchestra because I in elementary school, I tried different instruments. I played flute clarinet and kettle drums and all kinds of things. In those days, the music program was still in school. So you can take lessons almost on anything you want. I felt like it was a playground. I was just hopping from instrument to instrument, just trying things because it was so much fun. Mm -hmm. And uh, got there to the auditorium in junior high school. And these guys were a rhythm section. They were playing guitars and bass and drums. And uh, the program in our junior high school at the time was uh, the rock opera Tommy. And a couple of guys and they were playing and one guy was playing, I'll never forget him. He's, a, he's like a legend in, in Linden where I came up. He's a great musician, his name is Mitch Eisenberg. He was playing a, a Les Paul and he, they were playing a rock opera Tommy. He was playing the underture and the overture and they were playing and they sounded awesome. I don't know, something just, a light went off inside of me and I said, man, I, I got a guitar at home. I could do that, you know? And I think I went, started from there and picked it back up and just decided I wasn't going to put it down anymore. You know? So you got into um, bands in, in middle school and high school. When did you start kind of playing with others? Right, middle school. And uh, middle school and we started, some of my friends, some of the guys, we started joining, creating bands and doing things, and playing little talent shows, a lot of stuff like that. <clears throat> High school is really when it started to kick in. Uh, we had a small version of a band that was up the street from me. And then me and a couple of buddies that lived right around the corner from each other on my end of the street, 
at our little faction. And so we kind of went up and joined with them. They had drums, bass, and uh, we had the vocals and I had guitar. And uh, so we went up and joined it. And one of my, my, my other buddy that wound up playing drums later on, he was playing percussion and singing in this band. We played with them, had a good run with that. That was called the Midnight Movement, which was back in the day, had those names for the bands. And then we played, you know, played school functions and it had a good sound. And people really liked it because we were playing a lot of the stuff of the day. You know, in those days, we were learning like stuff cool and the gang stuff from way back in the day. It was early cool and the gang stuff, you know, like go back to who's going to take the weight and all of that stuff. You know, we were learning that stuff and playing that. And, uh, did, and did you have horns in the band? No, we didn't have horns in that band, but we still played it anyway. We just, we just played what we wanted to play and, and made, made, made it happen, you know. And then uh, we separated from that and then formed our own band. And the drummer and I, my friend, Brian Stevens, and he and I started said, well, we're going to start our own, you know, we'll do our own thing, you know, we called it Symphonic Express, started, had a few members that started out with us and went for a good while, and then it kind of changed, a few members came in, a few members left, but we stayed, we were the core, and uh, the guitar player that was in the Midnight Movement, my buddy Craig Dotson, he came with us, he came, once we joined that, he came on down with us, and it was the three of us that were the core of that band for a long time. And then uh, and we later on, we met a keyboard player that we were totally in awe of and still in awe of to this day. He was brilliant then and still brilliant. His name is Kevin Grady. And uh, he joined, we joined him. We had a couple of different bass players. Came still, in and out. still in New Jersey? Yes, still in New Jersey. But then uh, we ran, We got a, sh a chance to get. Uh, went to, that's at that period of time. That's when my aunt, my aunt Penny, stepped in. She saw how serious we were, and she started working with us. And she started managing us. And she taught us, started showing us how to not just play, but how to go put on a show, and how to be professional, and work ethic, and serious practicing. I mean, we went to school, came home from school, whatever we had to do homework wise, but we got down in the basement, we rehearsed for hours. And so it was time to go to bed and go to school the next day. And we did a lot of work like that. And she got us in the clubs. We got us, we were playing clubs, and getting booked more and more and more. And it just started picking on momentum of its own. You know, we got a van and, you know, had equipment and, everything it was just it, it was just ongoing you know so uh those are good days we uh learned a lot learned got a real good education about you know how to go about playing and the business side of it as far as booking and all of that and, and it's just it was just what we were we loved what we were doing you know we were, we were kids in high school man but we were we were out on the weekends making really good money coming home to go to school Monday morning, man, yeah, our pockets were full. We were buying clothes and everything we were doing. But it was a, it was a good time, you know, that, 
I don't know too many other kids that were doing quite that much at that time, you know. Did, did you do any uh, events at your school too? Um, not at our school. I know, I think we did one event. One, uh, one, by the time we got in and my aunt was working with us, that's when we met Starlena. Because my aunt was working at AT&T and Starlena's sister was working there. And they were talking about, oh, my nephew has a band and we're doing a, she said, oh yeah, well, my sister sings. And uh, so that, that kicked off and we were looking for another female vocalist. So we, she came down to audition and she came down and uh, sang Natalie Cole's Inseparable. Mm -hmm. She came down and sang it, went through it once. We played through it once. She sang the song once. We said, game over. You know, that's that's in that's an end right there. She joined the band. It was just like that. So that's got that's got to be like um, Kurt, nineteen seventy five. I want to say seventy five, seventy six. Yeah, somewhere right in there. Yeah, you're right. You're right on. It could have been the end of seventy five, somewhere in there, right in there, seventy six, going into seventy six, because by seventy six we. Yeah, we started playing this club over in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was a, a spot where a lot of bands came out of oh, a little hole in the wall. But in those days, you had some of the best bands playing in those places. A place called Yours, Mine, and Ours. We used to play there over and over again. Quite a we get booked there quite a bit, and uh, it was just a great a great time. You could go there. There's bands playing everywhere, you know. So we Cut. met a lot of musician friends that. Way. A couple of questions, Kurt. Um, one is, did you feel comfortable uh, right off sort of being a front person or the center of attention on stage? Or did you have to kind of grow into that? Um, and um, and who were some of the singers or players that you really looked up to and kind of emulated at that point? Right. Okay. Well, I knew I was more of a singer first before I started playing guitar. I always sang as a kid, you know, so I always knew I was going to sing something, you know, I didn't know what, you know, I was young, but um, so when it came to the bands, we're really kind of, it kind of, I was getting in a period where I was trying to focus on playing guitar and become a really good player and try to do as good as I can. And it seemed like every band that I got into, something would happen. And, well, I had to be the main guy. I had to be the, the front gun singing. So, but I accompanied myself. But it, you know, I played, but not as intensely as I would have had I was had I just been playing guitar, you know. So, but it was all for the good. It was all to balance me out, as I figured out later on. Because once I let go of the frustration of that and different things, I said, you know, this is all probably good. You know, this is what I should do. All of it, you know, because. After a while, I started feeling empty without one or the other. And I told my buddy Craig, I said, you know, man, I realized that I wouldn't feel complete if I didn't do both now. You know, and he he, he understood that because we've been doing it that way for so long. Um, some of the vocalists that I listened to and, and uh, musicians that I listened to at the time, people that made me really want to do it, you know, well, Marvin Gaye, long history with my family and everything so 
that's one of the guys that made me truly want to do it. I grew up listening to Ray Charles in the house. And it, it, I don't even have to tell anybody how amazing he was. I mean, I mean, I, I, I can remember a time sitting there in the living room listening to some of the stuff, my collection my dad had. He had an incredible jazz collection. And I was listening to Ray Charles. Dad, man, this guy, I said, Ray Charles, man, he just, everything that comes out of his mouth sounds amazing. Even when he grunts, you know, my father said, yeah, yeah, he's all brother. He's the real deal, you know. So I did. That's the kind of stuff I grew up listening to. That, Marvin Gaye, loved Al Green, um, Sly Stone, you know, grew up listening to Nat King Cole. Grew up listening to Billy Eckstein. Grew up listening to Frank Sinatra. Grew up listening to, there's a, a wide range of, of uh, everything, you know. Nancy Wilson, mm -hmm. awesome vocalist. She just amazed me all the time. And then the Motown era came in. Every, every Supreme record, every Four Tops record, all the Stevie Wonder records, all the Marvel, all the Motown records, man, I'd sit at the speaker just listening to the sounds and you try to picture what they look like when they were doing that. And, you know, in those days, everything sounded like it had a lot of echo, you know, and AM radio sounded like it had a little bit of echo to it. So, and, and so I think we had cousin Brucey on WABC in New York and he, he say, yeah, next, next coming up. Now as a kid, he said, next coming up, we got coming up playing for you is uh, we got four tops. And we got the Supremes. And, and I said, wow. And I was a kid, I hadn't figured it out. It was radio yet. I said, wow, they're, they're all going to be there and they're going to play. And it sounded like it was live because they had echo going on and everything. I said, wow, it, that, I just thought it was a live experience. It felt like it to me. You, know, you don't know. You just go by the, the picture your mind paints from the sound that you hear when you're a kid. You know? it, that's funny because now, nowadays, half the performances in person aren't even live. <laughs> That's right. That is so true. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's another that's another interview. <laughs> you can go a long way on that one. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, Kurt, we're in the mid seventies. You're uh, selling your oats. You're really getting rolling. Um, you got Starlina's involved. I think now she first got involved with the slave organization, or you know, how'd you meet uh, Steve Washington, and what happened there? Yeah, we met uh, Steve Washington through my aunt. Aunt Penny brought him down to, met him. He's getting gigs and making connections through people and clubs. And she met him. And uh, I guess they struck up a conversation. And he, he told her what he was doing. And then, so she brought him down to, to just to look, so we can hear his perspective. And he said he would be glad to help work, work with us a little bit. And, so he came down a couple of rehearsals and checking things out and helping us do, do a few things. And, and then uh, he and I, you know, we were talking and it's kind of clicked, you know, I mean, I, I just thought it was inspiring. I was like, wow, you know, he told me the whole deal of what his history was from because a lot of people don't realize that now he was, he's a one year younger than I am. And at this time we're like, I want to say 17, 18 years old, you know, and he had already been on the road 
with the Ohio players. His his uncle, his Trump player in Ohio players, had a car accident and lost his teeth and couldn't tour with them for a while. So they call out Stevie and have him come and play with them. And he goes out on the road with them. This dude was only 16 years old, but he was already a brilliant trumpet player. You know, so he and so he got a lot of road experience and got a lot of everything experience. And quite as it's kept while he was out there doing all of that and working with them, he met people out there, met different bands and musicians. And that's where and when he put together, got, got, met the members and they put together Slade. And the Ohio Players, uh, Kurt, were my first favorite band. So that's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I, I go back to them. There's, you know, there's so many that I love, but there's a special connection with them. I always, I would never miss their performances. Back in the days when we had in concert, midnight special. And, you know, those guys were one of the rare successful R&B acts and that crossed over in a time onto the pop charts without compromising their sound, trying to sound pop. They sound as soulful and as funky as they ever wanted to. Jazzy sometimes, bluesy, the way they sounded. And they, they did it all. And, you know, when you're a kid you're coming up in junior high and high school and you're playing and, man, African-American kid playing guitar, Jimi Hendrix had already passed away. And you, you got... Sugarfoot on TV, really bringing it like that. You're like, man. The double neck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was inspiring, man. That guy was just amazing to watch. And it sounded. Big, big head. The hair looked like a microphone. <laughs> yeah, he had a big swoop, swoop fro. Yeah. Classy as, he, you know, cool, cool as he wanted to be, man. Just, just all of them. They were really great. They had different stages, too. When they had Junie in the beginning, and then when uh, Billy Beck joined, man, it, it, the sound just kept on getting better and better. And I remember the first time I heard Skin Tight, I think I was in the backseat of the car with my mother and my aunt. We were going to a bank, and we pull up to a drive-up window, and I'm sitting in the backseat, <clears throat> summertime, it's kind of hot. Skin Tight comes on, and I listen. That's right, the players got a new song out. And I heard that thing and played all the way through, and the keyboard solo. And I, that thing was so bad, it, was, it just stopped my world for, for more than five minutes. It was just, it was like I read a book that I couldn't put down. You know, it was yeah. kind of like that, you know. That's the way songs heard, could hit you back then. Yeah, I knew I heard something that was definitely defining where music was at and was changing some things. And uh, players were that, players were like that. They were very good, they were awesome. So Steve was a diminutive guy. I've never met him in person, but that's what I understand. So what was your impression of him? You know, what kind of uh, personality did he have? And obviously he was very talented. Oh yeah, very talented, man. We were, oh man, we had, uh, one of the bass players that we had at the time, we were learning, everybody was learning. That was the time when Stevie Wonder released songs in the key of life. 
And man, and playing in clubs in those days, man, if you weren't playing, I wish uh, you weren't you weren't doing much, you know. And our bass player was <laughs> he, he was doing it, but he was having a little difficulty with it. And Stevie was there, and you know he was watching it. And <laughs> I think we were I think we were kind of like wanting to get a different bass player at the time, maybe. Uh, I, from what I can remember, and and he was having a little more difficulty than we we wanted, to, and just wasn't bringing that edge. And Stevie said, "Here, let me see. Where's the start? Start playing it and just played it note for note. <laughs> we all just looked at each other. Our jaws just dropped. We just, wow. <laughs> so wish you could come play with us, but you know, he was good enough to come down and work with us all the time and share anything he could share. Share. And um, so you fast forward a little bit." He started coming to our gigs and helping us. And then we had changed the name of the band from Symphonic Express to Star Child. And at that point, there was a legend bass player that was already a legend in, in Linden and in New Jersey. And his name was Raymond Jackson. And he grew up in our town, but like we were younger than a little bit, a couple years younger than him. He had already made this big name himself that we were working hard at trying to do and I don't know how it happened but at some point he got a chance to hear us and we told him we were looking for a bass player and we asked him if he'd be interested and he dug what he heard he said yeah some young dudes from Linden man and yeah my hometown and, and y'all sound like you do yeah he, he said yeah I'll join and he so he joined us and man, he had the now Ray Jackson played on all the Aura records, and he's played the famous bass line for M. Tume and Juicy Fruit. That's that's Ray Jackson on all the juice on the M. Tume, a lot of early M. Tume records. Okay. M. Tume went solo, you know. Uh, so we had a sound, we had the sound that we were looking for. It felt like we were really coming on. And so by this time, now I have to, I'm going up forward and then I'm going back because I'm remembering things in in segments and they're not connected sometimes because I remember but we were down in my basement before this is before Ray Jack got in the band and when Stevie first started working with us and he told me that uh he had a band and uh the name of it was Slave and he said uh yeah we cut a record cut an album uh, we're just we're, I'm just waiting for some contractual things to get straightened out with the record label. And he said the record label was Atlantic. And I said, really? Signed to Atlantic. I said, wow, that's amazing. That's great, you know. And so he, he come down and come down, work with us every every other night or whatever, however it was. And one night he comes down. Remember, it was cold out. It was winter. He said, it's done. We got it. I said, what you what'd you get? He said. All the contracts are worked out. Everything's done. Records coming out. I said, "Really?" I said, "Man, I got excited." I said, "I can't wait. Wow, that's awesome." He said, "And I got a reel-to-reel of it. You want to hear it?" I said, "Yeah, I got a reel-to-reel upstairs in my room." So we go up in my room and play it. And I made up my mind, man. This guy's so cool, and he comes down and helps us so much, and he's talented. Even if I'm not that crazy about this, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be 
definitely positive about it because he's gone further than any of us has ever gone. And so, so I, I was prepared for it to sound, eh, all right, but it's a record and he's got it done. Then the very first thing I heard when he started to reel was slide. Okay. I, <laughs> I, man, he went all the way through the track and I was listening and my jaw dropped and the guitar solo was playing. And I, I just said to Steve, he said, that's your band, man? He said, yeah. I said, wow, that's nice, man. That's really nice. <laughs> I, I couldn't say nothing else. I said, that was the most amazing thing that I had heard at that point in time. You know, I said, man, that sounded like radio right now and radio tomorrow. You know, it was just amazing. I, I can only imagine, Kirk, because I still remember when I first heard that on a small radio at the beach in California, and it just blew my mind, and it dominated my whole summer that year. That track was unbelievable. I, I had Steve Arrington on. I don't know if you've seen that show, and we talked about that a lot, and he just, too, remembered how he was blown away when he first heard it. Yeah, 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 that, that it was amazing. And see, that record came out and blew up so huge. They went out on tours with like the major acts of the time. I mean, you couldn't get no hotter than the people they were going out and touring with. Average white band in their heyday. I mean, they were, they were doing dates with these guys at major arenas. And so, and we were still playing in the clubs. But at this point in time, Stevie was taking on the responsibility of helping us and really, uh, really helping us and trying to get us recorded to get a deal. So as a morale booster, I'll never forget this and I'll never be able to thank him or the guys enough. When he came in off the road, he came to our gigs with, in the time for us to set up in trucks with some of the slave equipment or the road cases that had the slave sticker on it. And he rolled them into the club for us so that they could be around us while we were playing. Uh, now you talk about young guys starting out. We're trying to get get going, and he's doing this to supporters and showing us that he's got our back. And it was like people were looking around, seeing Slave on this, and they knew the record. The record was huge already, you know. It's like, and we were like, I looked at my drummer. I said, "This is pretty hot shit here." <laughs> he said, "I know." Yeah, but it was uh, really incredible. Kurt, help me with the, the connection though. It's Jersey and Ohio and, and how did, was was Steve in Ohio or in New Jersey or? Steve uh, lived in New Jersey, but he went out to Ohio. But as I told you before, and he worked with the Ohio players. Yeah, and, yeah. And he started slave out in Ohio, but because his uncle lived, was part of the players and they lived in, in Dayton. And then, so he, but, he, but he was in school in Jersey. You know? Oh, so he kept going back and forth. He went back, I guess, I think when he was on the road, I think he had tutors, I'm pretty sure. I, I think I can remember him saying that. I may not be accurate, but this was a while ago. But I think that's how he did most of it. Because he was brilliant. And this, he he was a sound, He's he's a, he still is a sound guru. This guy had incredible methods of finding sound and getting sound. There's a... With Slave, 
you hear the sound and the great Mark Adams, the bass player, you know, his sound to me is as synonymous with Slave as Ronnie Isley's voice is with the Isley brothers. You know what I mean? It's, it's that, that strong. And Adams, Mark Adams had the touch and the, and the, and the fever and the, and the work ethic. And he just played things from the heart and made it look easy. And Stevie worked behind the scenes of him electronically to really build and support and expand that sound. That sound got expanded. Stevie found the right speakers, wound up touring with earthquake speakers. They were, <laughs> I forget, but they were crossing over a certain cycle. He, they had the bass frequencies was, were reaching, they were so low when you recorded them in the studio and when you played live that they were, the, the frequencies were so low that you couldn't hear them, but you could feel them. And that's, that's the kind of mind that Steve Washington has. I mean, it, it's on another level, man. You know, it, it's something to behold. I, I was just in awe every day that he, want, he just wanted me to be a part of it wanted me to be around, you know? I mean, uh, we did, the, we, he was working with our band and eventually our band, um, our band kept playing. Starlina left and went with, with uh, Stevie and Slave uh, at, at that time. And I, I, I said, well, I gotta stay. I'm, I'm the captain of this ship, me, me and the drummer. We, we, we kind of started this. I felt like uh, I'm going down with the ship try to get this band going and then and Stevie still tried to help us and get us get us get a deal but eventually as time went on we played clubs played clubs and then um the band started to you know the members started to separate i think the bass player had to go to california and we never really found a bass player to fill ray jack's shoes the way we wanted it and so it just kind of sat idle until it just wasn't doing anything anymore we just weren't and at that time i was working right because i think i'm, I'm going to show this kurt sorry to interrupt you but i think this was star's first record right them, right? right you weren't there yet but she hopped on this one right right yeah. her and steve arrington yeah so this was the second one after the slide record no this is the third one this they're all the, the uh harness of the world was second yes harness of the world was second yeah yeah okay Third one. And, uh, yeah, Stellar Funk came off of that. And uh, at that time, when our band had split and we weren't doing anything, we were all working jobs and everything. I think I was working in, and I was working in a bank in New, in Linden, in, you know, just as a second job, just cleaning up after the day was over, uh, just make sure that everything was clean up, swept the floors and all that. But I had access to phones, you know, nobody was in there. and I, so one day, I don't know what made me do it. I called Stevie up and he said, hey, man, how you doing? I said, oh, yeah, man. He said, man, I was just thinking about you. And I was like, come on, man. Everybody always says that when you know, but he said, no, man, I really was thinking about you. I wanted you to come up. I, I want to have a meeting with you. I got some things I want to show you. And I said, okay. So I go up the next day, I think, and have the meeting and he had laid out on paper and true to his word he had been thinking about this for quite a while it was all structured out on paper everything the production company that he had with slave starlina 
Steve Arrington and myself being a part of the production company, but he purposely did not want to sign us into the group's recording contract because he wanted us to be able to get independent record deals, you know, same way George Clinton did with all, you know, the different talent that he had. And Stevie had the same sort of outline. So I was supposed to do a record and uh, Steve Arrington was going to do one. Sarlena was. And we started doing this. And but in the meantime, we would work with Slayer and we go on tour, play with the band, rehearse with the band, then got to record with the band, got to sing. And I was surprised that I got to write. I got he let me write stuff. I started writing songs with them, and and then by the time Stone Jam came, I I got to do some writing and even got in on, on a song or two and got to do some production stuff and, and call some shots, you know, on uh, some stuff that we were doing. And just not really cost, but just be creative. We were feeding off each each other other's energy because we went out on tour on the Just a Touch of Love album. We went out for a long time and we had gelled. So when we came off the road, the stuff that was happening with Stone Jam, stuff could almost, some of the stuff almost could write itself just because we had gelled on the road. And some of the grooves we would get into and sound check and just ideas that we had, man, just stuff that started coming back to us in the studio. And it just, it was just like finishing, finishing each other's sentence speaking. You know, a lot of that stuff. It's amazing. Now, let me jump in for a second because you went through some important musical history right there. Uh, just a touch of love, I think it's 78 or 79? 79. 79. 79. So that really was a milestone record for Slave because Just a Touch was, I would say, their biggest sort of kind of crossover y kind of sounding hit at that time um, and got club play and things like that. And there's a lot of different kinds of things on that album that they really hadn't done before, you know, um, more of a pop R&B sensibility rather than just straight funk. And I also really like that track Shine on that record, too. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was that was just us reaching for something musical without thinking about what category or whatever. We were just going for it and trying to everything that we went through you know the, the music was there then the vocals we were reaching the concept that i was trying to approach with the vocals i was doing and it was, we were just reaching for something that to take things up take the listener to another level in that song and it felt it felt just like that's what was happening when we were recording it some amazing stuff watching mark adams play the bass on that watching Danny Webster and Drac play guitars on that, uh, Steve Arrington on drums. <laughs> it's just incredible, man. I'd sit there and watch them cut and then what, what and the uh, song is, song Roots, song Roots on Just a Touch. We did it at the House of Music in West Orange, New Jersey. That was kind of our home base. And uh, Charlie Conrad and Irene Conrad, they were wonderful people. They, uh, that was a home for a lot of people. It was a special place. You can go there and record and you didn't have to worry about whether you were gonna accomplish what you were gonna trying to do because it was gonna get done. And if you needed something, it would, it would happen. And 
one of the examples was in just such a love album we wanted to add some horns to it we had the horn section but we wanted to add some and we put the word out i think charlie conrad or i can't i think charlie conrad got through to them but we got the brecker brothers alan rubin lou delgado john faddis these guys played on saturday night live and the horn section they came in they, they they knew of slave and they heard some of the stuff and they liked it they said yes we do the session they came and did did the session they did some extra horn tracks on there now i'm sitting in john trope the great john trope guitarist was conducting and conducting the horns and i'm sitting there in studio a just all i needed was a bag of popcorn because this is like watching this was watching some amazing stuff, man. I'm talking about the Brecker brothers, man. I'm, I couldn't even speak. I was just watching these guys and the way they approached it and everything was so airtight. It was just beautiful, man. It was just, just amazing stuff like that. Moments you'll never forget. So how much in, in like that record in crafting it, was it Steve Washington versus like, you know, what was Jimmy Douglas's role and how did that come together? Yeah, Jimmy Douglas is, Wow, you said a huge name there. Jimmy Douglas is a legend, man. This, this guy, he's just, he's just, there's no, there's no expiration life for his, his, his expiration date for his, his brilliance. I mean, he, he, he's worked with so many and any and everybody. There's nothing he hasn't seen or done. And when he, we were working with us, it was just exciting. Stevie was the had that had the vision and, and laid the blueprint out of what we were doing. We said everybody would fall in. We get it together. The guys had their ideas. It was a pool of creativity, and Stevie kind of oversaw it and made sure that it got produced properly. Jimmy was right there <clears throat> as the engineer, making sure everything got handled properly, and then. Jimmy would mix, Jimmy and Stevie would mix. Sometimes uh, I, just, uh, I, I don't know how to use words for it. And it, it was like, you, you just had to be there to see it. You know, it was, it was more chemistry. Than, yeah, yeah, it was, it's hard to put into words that, but it was brilliance at its highest, you know? And then he knows brilliance because they would sit there and make it look so easy. You know, and great people do that. They make things that aren't so easily understood look like it's easy. They made it look like they were breathing air. Did, did, did now? Did you uh, relocate at at any time to that Ohio area, or you stayed in, in the Jersey area? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? I said, did you did you relocate at any point to the Ohio area, or did you stay in the oh. Jersey area? Oh no, I stayed in New Jersey. Yeah. Okay. But we went out to we went out to Ohio to re, to rehearse for the tours, and I went out to Dayton uh, with the guys, and we rehearsed and went out on the road. Uh, when Just a Touch, Just a Touch was the first album I was on with them, and after finishing that, um, got the word we were going out, and I think the first dates were like in <clears throat> late December. Or early January, I can remember it was cold and it was Christmas time, and we were rehearsing. 
And uh, the first tour was with uh, the OJs and Phyllis Hyman. Uh, and this was the OJs when they had the full orchestra. And man, just show after show. <laughs> man, and, um, you know, I just told you where I come from with the bands and I, and just loving people that, you know, that made me want to do it. And all of a sudden, you're on the road with some of the people that you sat and listened to the records and wondered if you can ever even buy a ticket to their show. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting here playing, playing and open up for some of them and we're playing on the bill. And I'm getting to see this. I'm just like, this is, this is special stuff. Eddie LaVert, man. <laughs> oh my God. He would tear the stage up every night. That guy, man, that was amazing watching that. And then Phyllis Hyman, God rest her soul. She was as beautiful as you ever wanted. She was like a goddess on stage. And I remember one of the shows we finished and Drax called me and said, come on, man, let's go downstairs and meet Phyllis. Because he had evidently met her and started talking with her. And uh, so we went downstairs and she gave us a signed picture, uh, you know, uh, eight by 10. And she's just as sweet as she can be. And, you know, I'm this young guy and this, She's this goddess. So I was just like, Gaga. I was like, oh, I, I couldn't, couldn't even find words, man. She had just blown the stage away and just sang her heart out, you know. And uh, did some stuff with her later on, too, with Aura. And uh, amazing story. She was a, every bit of a professional. I'll never forget, we did an outdoor concert in North Carolina with her, with uh, Aura and uh, her, I forget. Two other acts, oh, uh, Daz Band, they were on the bill. And uh, she, she we, were, we had played our show and we were standing down at the bottom of the stairs. You know, these festivals are outdoors. And her, her limo was right there. And we were all like kind of standing around her limo. And um, she got out and she was getting ready to go on. And something happened. She turned and did something. And somebody closed the door, closed the door on her finger of the limo. Everybody froze. She was like, oh my God. And it was like, you could tell she was in excruciating pain. It was time for her to go on. This woman got herself together, took a breath, climbed the steps and got up on that stage, walked around on that stage, took her shoes off. You thought you were in her living room and she sang to you and sang every note and just delivered the most amazing show. All of us down watching her on the side were just amazed by her performance and we forgot about everything that happened and then she comes down the steps and then holding her hand and saying okay let's go to the hospital and something like something to that effect i was like oh yeah that's right we forgot all about she'd hurt her hand she did such an amazing show you know i said well take your notepad out guys that was professionalism at its highest level right there you know well Amazing. So what what was it like um, among the other fellas in, in Slave and, and with you? I mean, did, did it welcome you with open arms and were they kind of like brothers? Did you guys do anything together or was it sort of just a professional relationship? What was it like? Yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah, was kind of like a second family kind of thing. We kind of had each other's back. We, because Stevie had made them aware of who I was before I joined and as he did with Sarlena with them. And so, and 
they knew that I worked with Starlina in my band and they knew, they heard of everything that Stevie told them that I was bringing to the table. And so uh, I think it was one of the days we were upstairs in, in, the, in his room where we had all the meetings at. And, it, and we, all of the, the branch from, from Ohio, our name for them was the brothers. We said, well, the brothers are coming. I said, really? Okay. So the, I get to meet them. You know, I had met them before because he, when Stevie was supporting us in Star Child, we got to go to a couple of their rehearsals when they were rehearsing for some of those tours when they were going out with Slide and all of that. So I met the guys. I met Danny. I met Drac. Met Adams. Met uh, met the original members. But uh, this is them coming, and we're getting ready to start working on just a touch of love together. And uh, so they come out, and we, we, the recording dates were set at the House of Music, and we start recording. They came out and uh, came up. They came up to the third floor. All of them were coming up, and I was already up there. And uh, and uh, the mo one of I think the moment I'll never forget. I, I think I put it in a in a post after his passing. But uh, Mark Adams came up, and he remembered me. They all remembered me from, from what we were doing, and he said. Uh, he, had, he just had a smile on his face, man. He came up and shook my hand. He said, welcome aboard, man. Welcome aboard. I was like, I said, wow, okay, that's cool, man. That's that's cool. Because this dude was already making a name for himself. I mean, just, you could tell it was something that he, something that he had and what he was doing. I mean, he was playing bass and he was playing funk, but there were a lot of other people doing it, but they didn't sound like him. There's something that, made you remember him you know and he and stevie together worked on that sound and made it unforgettable yeah well at first i th i thought it was just him but i've come over the years to realize that steve played a you know if not equal close to a role in creating that sound yeah yeah did. yeah they, had, they were brilliant talents i mean uh one of the most uh drac did solo on uh slide which was brilliant and you could just feel him you knew he loved Jimi hendrix you knew he loved ernie isley he was he had a feel but he had something of his own and he had his own way of of speaking with his voice through the guitar one of the most undersung cats danny webster in the band i mean when you hear some of the things that kind of like that on on the brilliance of like what Prince does with guitars and stuff and vocals, uh, Danny Webster was kind of like already there back when I met him. He, he was doing some pretty amazing stuff on guitar, and he was a big fan of of Sly and Freddie Stone, and he had this thing and thing would touch. I think one of the biggest things that I got from him because on the first tour we roomed together. And so we were in the hotel, so we just pull out a guitars and start playing. And he said, "Man, play with me on this." And we play stuff. And the, and I and I noticed this a certain touch that he had, and it also broadened. I understood that the guitar was a touch touch sensitive instrument, but something that he was doing definitely helped me connect with certain things. And I I heard what he was doing. It was the way he approached it. The way his touch was, he came up with some brilliant uh, lines and rhythms, and and then he had this 
voice thing that he had the falsetto voice and then he had the low low voice so like all of that deep baritone and high falset kind of thing he he was doing that a while ago and i don't think he ever in my mind i don't think he ever got a chance to really you know be heard with all of the ideas that he had that he could do because he had so much within him man i said man i said he played something from me i said man why don't you record that you know he was just awesome man the guy he's still playing today i'm done i i couldn't communicate with him from time to time you know through a messenger or whatever we thought you know, just just little general stuff but he was a guy that um, we got once we locked in and got with each other we felt like a like a family we kind of had our each other's back on the road and we were feeding off each other's energy there's so much talent in that that group that that's what i was just gonna say yeah it had to disband at some point and different people had to find a way because you know i mean you have so much water in a pipe before it breaks you know it's like it eventually it has to find its own way you know and uh i that's the best way i can explain that steve arrington can attest to that because we he and i talk all the time about that and uh I mean, there was a time we did a when we did, finished the Stone Jam album, it was done, and I think we were in the studio recording, recording uh, Aura, the uh, Are You Single record, and it was a. Uh, I think someone told me that they got a call from Atlantic. Steve got a call from Atlantic or something, and Stone Jam was out. It was making its way, and people were really getting getting acquainted with it, and, and uh, they. Atlantic said that we got a message from Stevie Wonder, and he said that he thought that Stone Jam was one of the most innovative records that he's heard that year in, in a while. Man, I, nobody could say anything. Everybody froze. We were like, you got to be kidding me, man. Stevie Wonder? <laughs> wow. That was moments <laughs> like that. Uh, that's priceless, man. How do you, how do you, you can't make that stuff up. So, you know, I was a fan with Slave from Slide On, and I got every record when it came out. I used to take multiple buses from Santa Monica, California, all the way to you know, the Crenshaw District to get the records as soon as they came out. And because um, it would take a little longer to get around to where I lived for them to have it in the store, and I wanted it right away. But when this one came out, I just, as soon as it, to me, it was easily the most complete um consistent slave record to that point and it just fired on all cylinders um it's just great from start to finish everything in it just works so well it's got variety and everything it tries it succeeds with wow well thank yeah thanks for that uh, it's a uh... It was a, I don't even know how to put, the, put it into words. It was, it, like I said, a lot of it came off from the energy that we had established working with each other on the road and getting to know each other and really clicking. And it, it just kind of, everything just kind of found its place, you know. Um, I worked on certain songs. Certain songs that uh you know that I didn't sing. I mean, I think one of the songs starting all over, 
I think I kind of helped set the verses up with that. And I was talking with, with uh, Brother Sly, Floyd Miller, man, and he incredible percussionist, trombonist, vocalist, if he wanted to be. He just said, I don't think he ever pushed himself to sing anything, like, you know, but I said, come on, man, you can sing this. And I because he and I had a great rapport, and I, he, I, at first, I think he might have been a little apprehensive, but he just jumped on it and sang it like he'd been singing all his life. And I said, man, you, you should have been singing stuff way more, more than you're doing. You know, he had, he had a great voice, man. It's that talent thing again. He's amazing, man. And this guy was an artist. I mean, he would draw pictures that look like modern Johnny Quest Jetsons <laughs> cartoons, but modern. Like, and then some of the later slave albums that you saw, like um, uh, with, with the one with uh, party lights on it and wait for showtime. Me. Yeah, that's that's his that's his drawing. He's that's his art. That's the that kind is, of that's wow. the kind of vision he had. Man, he can he was brilliant. Just he is brilliant. He's still doing stuff. Is brilliant. I know he is. You know, we communicate here and there so from time to time as well. Everybody had their 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 pool of talent, you know. Everybody had something special, you know, their own thing that made the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Tom Lockett just had his. There's something about what he did was special. There's something about what everybody did was special. Ray Turner on keyboards, amazing keyboard player. Oh, man, Stone Jam. People think that's a guitar solo. That's Ray Turner on a move, mini move, playing solo. It's amazing. He was, and while he was playing, he was mimicking, closing his eyes and mimicking himself playing guitar with the other hand, so he can get the feel of playing a guitar, guitar licks with his keyboard, playing keyboard with the right hand, and air guitar in the neck of a guitar with his left hand while he's playing it. It was brilliant to watch. Wow. He was just killing it. It was just incredible. Yeah. Did, did the band rehearse much or did you just kind of go to the studio and, and create a, how, how much were these songs kind of fully formed before going into the studio? Um, well, they had, they had rehearsal sessions and they, they had where they laid the music out and, and picked the ideas that they were going to do. Yeah. Stevie worked with them all the time and they, they got the ideas and they, they brought them to life in the studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then those days, you got to remember, you know, pre-production was a big thing. So and then we did that with Aurora, too. The ideas we had, maybe we would start recording it. Like, I remember Stevie and I coming up with Are You Single? And he and I sitting in a room on the floor with an open-faced little cassette player that had an open mic. And he had a bass and I had a guitar. And we were just jam and coming up with groove, coming up with ideas. We came up with that one. And we said, yeah, that's hot. That We're going to make that work. We're going to do something with that. We're gonna do. And that was the blueprint of it. And then get together with the band and put people on instruments and we start playing it and feeling it out and it comes together. Well, then those days you had pre-production. So we had four track tape machine. So we recorded ideas pre-production. And then once you did that, then you had to re-record it over again when you go to the studio, you know, on the two-inch tape, you know. So you 
by the time you got to the studio, you had already recorded it once on pre-production and you already had a run through of how you wanted certain things to feel. The familiarity and the repetition is like rehearsing a show. Then when it's time to do it in the studio, you're not wondering what you're gonna do. You just, you got the paintbrush out. Now you get a chance to just kind of create and paint, you know, colors the way you, the way you're feeling. You can feel it instead of having to remember because it's already in you. It's inherent. Everything you you've been through it enough that you don't have to read the lyrics. You don't have to do none of that. We we knew what we were going to the the foundation of what we wanted to do. We were free to deliver it in a fashion that we wanted to deliver it. Of course, Stone Jam had the big hit watching you, uh, which I was glad for because that helped bring the record to a bigger audience, which was great. Um, so as we kind of close the chapter on Slave, because I don't think you were on any Slave records after Stone Jam, is that correct? Right. After Stone Jam, that's when we uh, set, uh, focused on Stevie, myself, Sarlena, and Tom Lockett. We started setting this uh, blueprint out to do the Aura record. So before we talk more about Aura, Kurt, what... With Slave on those two records, are you most proud of or is the most meaningful to you? Each song had its own sweet spot in my heart because it just it just captures a, a, that energy that we had in a special time. You know, just a touch when I heard that. I said, wow, this is this is this feels like a huge record. And I I wouldn't even I wouldn't experienced enough to know what a hit was by any industry standards. I just knew that to me that that should be on the radio. That was a hit, you know. And uh, it did what it did. You know? Yeah. Uh, so so now why did you guys break off onto your own? I mean I know you said that was kind of the plan all along, but why did it happen how it happened? Um you know, things things have a, a, a journeys have a, a beginning, a middle, and, and sometimes a, a, and an end. And the energy that was in that band, it was so much of it and so much talent that eventually things were going to, it's like I explained to you, the water finding its own way. If you, you know, you close off water from one going one way it's gonna it's not gonna just stop going it's gonna find another way you know and, it, and that's what talent and and creative energy does and sometimes creative energy will shift the form maybe the form that it what you might want to call a physical form or what you see it as and that it just may need to express itself in a different way as as it grows it can't, it, if you're staying in the same mode that you're doing all the time, you're staying in a comfort zone. And that may be a comfortable place to be, but there's not a lot of growth going on in comfort zones. Mm -hmm. And the energy that we had was young and creative energy we had, we were young and full of drive and, and we were, it's like painting a picture or artists painting pictures or whatever, or songwriters writing whatever it's like 
okay, what can we do next? What this, I feel this, I want to do this. And uh, there was so many different things that actually it just had to be, it just went the way it went because it had to, it yeah. just had to, you know? Slave was not going to stop. It should have, it should have kept going and it did, but new things came out of that. And it should have, because it was just too much to stifle. You couldn't, there's no way that we could just stay one thing all our lives, it's, you know. And you guys were still all friendly? I, for the most part, I, you know, but don't speak, there's some people I'm not in communication with, but I think everybody's doing fine or, you know, they're doing good. There's no bad blood or nothing like that, but, but and some of the people I am in commun communication with, and um, it's just good to see them doing stuff and the, and the things, and they see you know, I'm trying to keep out there, and I see that they're, what they're doing, and I was like, yeah, right on, man, keep, keep plugging, keep doing what you do.